edition of the Unicorns Podcast. This is a podcast series featuring business leaders, motivators, innovators, and general go-getters. Michael Jardine is my guest today on the Unicorns Podcast. Michael is the Managing Director of Emerging Zinc Producer, Ironbark Zinc. It's on the ASX with the code IBG. G'day, Michael. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Justin. Thank you for having me on the show. Okay. Tell us about Ironbark Zinc. Thanks, Justin. We are the owners of what's known as the Citronin Project in Greenland. We have been in the country for 14 years. We have a large zinc lead deposit uh, that has been well studied and is on the cusp, we we hope, of moving from the, the study phase into development and then ultimately operations um, in the coming 12 months. We've done a lot of work in 2021 on you know, reframing the best way to develop this asset. We've done some very good work on that front, currently pursuing you know, a US-led financing strategy that we expect to hear you know, some news on soon, which will be mm. very, very instructive as to the rate of progress in 2022. Well, in relation to that, the US Exim Bank designation is a landmark achievement and a, a really good sign for impending funding. Tell us about the significance of that support status designation. Yeah, happy to do so. So to go back one step, US Exim Bank for everyone is the US government's official export credit agency and it has many peers around the world. Uh, you know, Australia has one as well. So these groups typically access very low cost government financing in exim's case it's you know us treasury money and they lend that out at low rates to uh, businesses that then use the money to buy uh, us goods and services again in in exim's Mm. case so this is to procure equipment and things like engineering design services so we have pivoted to a north american led uh, financing strategy for our project for several reasons, um, not the least of which is we will end up buying uh, a significant amount of US content. Mm-hmm. The, the relationship with Exxon has been about 15, we're about 15 to 18 months in now. Um, we've come to know them reasonably well and vice versa. They've been excellent to deal with. I, I, I could not ask for yeah. sort of a better counterparty. Now we have been in discussions with them for a straight project finance loan uh, for as I said sort of 12 to 15 months 12 months officially mm. closer to 18 um, unofficially has covid played a part in um, in upsetting the apple cart if you want in terms of um, negotiations there it's certainly been challenging in that the entire thing has happened over screen and I'm not sure about you Justin but I'm well and truly sick of meeting people, uh, meeting meeting their <laughs> heads. Zoom fatigue. Correct. Yeah. Meeting meeting a lot of talking heads on a screen. So I am look, very much mm. looking forward to meeting some of these people who are absolutely critical to the future of Ironbark in person soon. So we've been talking with Exim for a, over a year around a straight project finance loan. And as part of that conversation, uh, the opportunity emerged for us to apply for and be qualified for what they call Section 402 approval. Now, the 402 program is is a relatively new piece of legislation that governs Exxon Bank. It was put in place late 2019. There are two streams to it, uh, 402A and 402B. We fall under the 402A part of that. Yeah. And, and what it means is Exxon can 
effectively not disregard the credit worthiness of borrowers. So you still need to pass the credit test. But once you have done that and, it, you know, they're comfortable with banking a project in terms of its you know, risk and return parameters, it allows them substantially more flexibility in their lending criteria than they would otherwise be willing to entertain. Okay. So spe yep. specifically things like leverage ratio, how much debt versus equity, the tenor of the loan, so how long they'll lend for, rates and fees. Now, all of those things are somewhat esoteric, uh, I must admit, but important for capital markets and very important to the return profile of this project. So it's a huge win for us. There's no question. So am I, am I right in saying that this designation gives Ironbark special consideration. You've touched on this with respect to financing. So can you elaborate perhaps on what those considerations are and why they're important for the, the development of Citronin? Absolutely. So when you go to build a project, you'll, it'll cost a certain amount of money in terms of capital expenditure and working capital uh, up front before the operation, you know, enters a state of, of positive cash flow, whereby you have um, more cash coming in than you have going out. Now, that period of time and the size of the hurdle in terms of the, the CapEx hurdle that you need to spend initially um, does greatly impact um, the rate of return on a project. Mm -hmm. yep. And the cheaper the cost of finance, so in this case, you know, Exum lends money at incredibly low rates. So we're talking low single digits here. The cheaper the cost of finance you put in um, from the debt side, so typically you will both borrow money and um, use equity or, or new, new share capital to build a project, the lower the cost on the debt side, um, the higher the overall return and the higher the return will be to equity investors. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, some of those things around, so how long will the loan um, be extended for and at what rate, um, that has a huge impact on on the on, balance sheet, on mm. the balance sheet, and the return to equity investors. So they're really, really meaningful things. And we were the literally the first four hundred two A project that Exxon Bank has awarded uh, anywhere in the world. They've had they've had the right to do so for two years. And it was you know with great pleasure that Ironbark was bestowed um, this by Exxon Bank. And again, credit to both the team on their side who worked really hard as well as the team that I have around me um, to get to this point. And how long, Michael, have you been involved in Ironbark? So I took the role on, Justin, in, in the last week of September 2019. Uh, I joined mm -hmm. the day after my, new, my, my our current chairman, Dr. Fred Hare. So we were the turnaround team. The company's been listed for uh, since 2006, so 15 years, has had the asset uh, since 2007, so 14 years. It was effectively run by the same board for most of its life um, from 06 mm -hmm. to, to 2019. And and we joined, um, I wouldn't say, you know, turnaround is my word. <laughs> um, yeah. The guys before us did an outstanding job at moving the asset from, you know, discovery to the point in which we inherited it. We had a lot to work with and it was, again, our ability to build on what had gone before that has created this opportunity. Have you ever been up to Greenland? I have. So it's an interesting part of the world, no question. I'd be struggling or struggling to find it on a map. 
Yeah, it's look, it's a really interesting country. So it's about the same size as Western Australia. So it is very large. Mm. Um, it's the least densely populated country in the world. Um, to get there, you typically go through uh, Denmark. So there's daily flights between Copenhagen and, and Greenland. So Greenland is part of the Kingdom of Denmark. So that comprises Denmark proper, Greenland and the Faroe Islands. So it is, it's, it has a relatively high degree of autonomy, something like the, you know, the, the Mining Act. Um, that governs anyone looking to, ex, you know, explore for or exploit minerals in Greenland. That is part of um, the Greenlandic Parliament, uh, in, in terms of its legislative oversight. Um, there are mm-hmm. other other parts to life in Greenland that are um, sort of managed by Danes. So you know, borders, for example. Uh, yep. You can also go through Iceland, Justin, which is a, a you know, it's a it's a beautiful part of the world, very different to Western Australia or indeed anywhere in Australia. So how supportive has the Greenland government been towards the development of Citronin? Very supportive, which which is a really meaningful, again, um, part of the story here. So the, the Citronin project was the first of the large projects in Greenland. Um, there's a number of us looking to develop projects in the country, us sort of, you know, speaking of my industry or Ironbark's industry peers. There are a number of groups looking to develop projects. We were the first of the large ones to have its exploitation license um, granted or mining license. That was 2016. We're the first of the large ones to have the subsequent permit granted, um, which is the closure license. There are some smaller operations up and running in the country, but they're nothing on the scale of what Ironbark is looking to achieve with Citronin. Um, I, I speak with the government regularly. Like all governments, they have lots of balls in the air at any one point in time. Um, so, you know, they are busy and they have priorities other than, um, you know, assisting Ironbark, generally speaking, which won't be a surprise to anyone. However, mm. we have very good relationships. We've been an excellent corporate citizen we consider ourselves um, to be one of the most responsible operators in the country and pleased that I can reach out to them really at any point with questions or concerns and, and we'll resolve them together. Can you give us an idea of the size and scale of the operation, the project itself up there? Sure. So it's very large, uh, as in globally significant. It, it, if we were running today, we'd be the 10th largest zinc mine in the world. Um, to put some numbers mm. around that, we have currently in the in the mineral resource category about 80 million tons we have 50 million tons in the ore reserve so that's the the highest level of confidence you can have and something that is critical if you want to go to a bank and borrow borrow money so we will run the the existing mine life or the initial mine life would be more accurate is forecast to run for 20 years at a rate of 3.3 million tons per annum now the the ore body itself is open in almost every direction so what that means is we haven't found the edges of it you know, all of our drilling is still in mineralization. <laughs> Typically, uh, as a good you, thing. It is a good thing. So it's very likely it'll run for much, much longer than twenty years. So this is—it's already a multi-decade um, operation. It will—it will definitely run for more than twenty years. I'm very confident of that. To give you an idea of scale, the strike length of the known resource. So, sort of, this is if you—if you—if ha- you're looking at it from bird's eye view looking down on a map if you just drew a line that you know sort of from the Mm. the northwest corner to the southeast corner uh, it's 10 or 11 kilometers long and width it's about half that at the widest point so we're talking Mm. about a, a very large footprint it is predominantly an underground 
um, mine or will predominantly be an underground mine. We have a small open pit in what's called the discovery zone to the southeast, which is where they found it. Surprise, surprise. Um, but mm. it's very large and will get larger. There is absolutely no question. So to what extent do you think the current US-China geopolitical tension has been an influencing factor in the strong US interest in the project? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, there's, or a good point. There's, there's no question it has made um, some difference. So, initially, the opportunity for Exum is for a straight US content deal, i.e., yeah, Greenland is a net importer typically of anything that's that's manufactured. Our project will be procuring from outside of Greenland, you know, a majority of the capital equipment and, and expertise that goes in there. There's some very good service provision in country around things like drilling, um, uh, moving things by air or by sea, um, certainly, you know, some really good skill sets um, in some things that will be critical. But if you look at something like a, a power station or a processing circuit or heavy equipment, all of that will come in from, um, from overseas. So given mm. it has to be imported um, from somewhere, we have pivoted to to a US centric um, supply chain. So there's there's an opportunity for Exxon's bread and butter, which, as I mentioned earlier, they lend money to companies that then spend that in the US, and that ultimately creates employment. So there is that element to it. The 402 program, as I mentioned, has two limbs. There's both the sort of a, a an element of competition with China and a, and a program, whether it's Belt and Road or China Development Bank or any form of, of export credit out of China or there's, or there's so that's the 402A part of the program. 402B is considers a number of sort of high growth or high tech industries so things like AI, um, quantum mm. computing and so forth. So there's, there's if you look at the news recently, the EU has come out with a very similar program in the last 48 hours that is likewise I have, yeah. multi-billion mm. dollars. So I don't I don't know. It's very clearly this program, the 402 program, is aimed at um, creating competitive tension with funding out of China and to the extent that that's been a benefit to us, um, this is both, you know, it's a good outcome for both us uh, and for Exxon. I do think it's broader than, than just that um, in yeah, that of course. I, I think governments worldwide, particularly off the back of COVID, are considering things like supply chain security in a very different light. And I think we will see greater um, greater tension from a number of sources that are interested in making sure projects um, are developed in a way that, that benefits um, them. Um, so I was, I was going to ask you that. So do you think that it's likely that we'll see more of these critical minerals projects get off the ground? Look, I do. So zinc, zinc was added to the critical minerals list by the US Geological Survey about a month ago, which is, you know, again, a pleasing development and reflective of the fact that it is very important. It's a little bit, the role that zinc plays in the market is a little bit unknown relative to something, you know, minerals like, say, copper or lithium, but it is extremely important. There is no question. I do think that projects like ours that have been in the market for a little while and have achieved a lot technically but haven't yet got over the hurdle of moving from, you know, concept to reality and, and solving the financing puzzle, I, I do think we will see the good ones and clearly I consider us to be one of the good ones. Mm. Um, 
move ahead quite rapidly um, in the coming years. Yes, I do. So for the punters out there, Michael, who are listening to this, what do you use zinc for? Predominantly goes into galvanizing steel. So that's well over half of the market. So it Zinc is the sacrificial element um, in steel. Typically, the more zinc you add, the higher the quality the steel is. And that's mm. been a very long, um, long-running, very deep, stable part of the market. It's a really liquid metal. It's, um, it's, it can be bought and sold um, on various metal exchanges forward and so forth. So um, it's, it's, it's always been tied to really industrial growth. Uh, and it, outside of steel, it goes into alloys um, and then various sort of greases and other things. Now, where we see, so first of all, if you consider its traditional markets, there's substantial investment today happening in infrastructure. Again, government-led globally, we see real tailwinds in the traditional markets. If you look forward, especially off the back of you know net zero by 2050 type um, aspirations, where, yes. where do we see growth markets? So I personally believe zinc will play a role in the, in the development of the, the battery market. So mm-hmm. it's probably not going to displace lithium for, from mobility. You know, lithium has inherent advantages in terms of the amount of energy it can store by weight, which matters when you're moving things around because it impacts battery life. So I, I don't see zinc displacing lithium from vehicles, but if you look at something like grid storage where the battery doesn't move, then zinc has some real advantages. And I ultimately think the battery market will grow to the point that, various minerals will be exposed to that so that is one if you consider Mm. the galvanizing role and look at something like wind turbines and especially offshore wind turbines they're very zinc intensive because the the entire the entire installation in an offshore turbine needs to be galvanized uh the onshore the onshore turbines less so so there's real growth there they go into things like solar cells as well zinc metal does and we are seeing a small but pretty pretty quickly growing, like doubling every year use of zinc in agriculture. Um, if you add zinc to sort of mineral deficient land, it can greatly improve yield. So I think all of those three of there's three or four potential you know mega trends that will impact demand for zinc in the future. We've seen a real you know, a relatively sustained move up in the zinc price in the last six months, and there was a big spike around the time that energy prices spiked, um, particularly Mm. in in Northern Europe in recent months. What that said to me was the physical market is is actually pretty finely balanced and is probably tighter, if anything, than most people assumed. And it will not take much in the future for either supply to undershoot or demand to overshoot. And we will see... um, you know, some real movement in the zinc price if either of those things happen. So once Ironbark receives the Exum Bank financing approval, what do you think are the next steps then for the development of your project? Yeah, so the stage we're at with Exum is we've completed what they call phase one due diligence. And if we complete that successfully then we'll be issued what's called a preliminary project letter so this is a really really important deliverable um, for us and for the market and something i will briefly spend some time on 
that phase one DD and, and the PPL really says three things. First of all, you know, it'll signal Exum's intent to proceed to funding. So if they see something that's fatally flawed in the due diligence, typically the PPL is never issued. So so first of all, you know, it's 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 a strong signal that they want to take this all the way to funding. Two, mm-hmm. we, we will get a term sheet that'll outline how much uh, debt Exum is willing to extend and on what terms and uh, we know that impacts the financial model and returns and those types of things um, substantially. So we're, we're eagerly awaiting that. And the third one is we will get um, an issues list, as, as they call it, around things that we need to get them further comfortable on and, and that ongoing DD will continue to take place, whether that's financial, legal or technical. And we will get a timeline that gets us from PPL, the, the preliminary project letter, all the way through to Exxon Bank board approval. Um, I don't yet know exactly what that timeline looks like, but I hopefully will soon. So we'll have A, real certainty on where Exxon is at and B, much greater insight into what else we need to do. Um, the obvious challenge for us is to tackle the project equity question. Um, mm. We will need to, on top of the debt piece, raise substantial equity. Um, Ironbark today, in terms of its, you know, its market cap, is really trading at option value. Clearly, my job is to turn that around, start to build the market cap um, to the point that the project equity challenge becomes um, realistic. Uh, I think we have a pathway to do that, and, and that's where I'm focused. Have you got a timeline on when you think you might be able to get the project into production? So we know from from the moment we, we're fully funded and we press go, the schedule is 28 months, which is basically three summers and and, yep. and two winters in Greenland. So you know, mm. let's let's call that you know it's between two you know two and a half years, um, two to two to three years. Now the to get from where we are today to sort of financial close, i.e., the debt is unconditional and the project equity. Um, has been raised, I will not have perfect clarity on until um, I hopefully receive the PPL. What I can talk about is our aspiration. Um, Certainly the goal at this point would be to get on site in Greenland in the summer of 2022. So Mm -hmm. let's call it six to eight months from now. Now that is, that's aggressive and and optimistic and aspirational. So it is a target at this point. I don't think it's an impossible target, but we will need to execute well. If at the end of the day we spend next year, you know, confirming the financing is there and we do a lot of the off-site engineering work and the project only goes ahead in 2023. And again, these are goals, not commitments, because they're all subject to success and so forth along the way, then that would still be a very good result. It's clearly much more important we get to the right result. Um, If that's 2023, then we try and hit 2022 and fail ourselves out along the way. So we're certainly aware that, you know, sooner is better, um, but more focused on doing. You don't want right. to crash and burn. Correct. <laughs> Su- success is success is the number one goal, and and then success in the right time, you know, is 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 clearly better if you can achieve that. But the signs are good. There's a lot of positivity there. There is, you know, the company's come an awfully long way, Justin, um, in the last, you know, in the two years that I've been running it, and especially in the last six months, you know, updating the feasibility study. Um, which we delivered into the market in July of this year was a huge piece of work. It was the first genuinely new 
look or consideration of how to move the asset forward in, in the, probably a decade. So that was a huge piece mm. of work. We then mm. moved into a really intensive period to prepare for Exxon Phase 1 DD. Um, we've overhauled our board. We welcomed two really big names onto the board in um, in the back half of this year. So a gentleman named Paul Cahill, London-based. Uh, he is both... Um, experienced on the advising and the sponsor side so he's a guy that has done multiple multi-billion dollar mining deals in his time and has been a huge benefit um, to the board already the other director we we welcomed on was um mr alexander downer so australia's longest ever serving foreign minister he's also i saw him on the tv last night yes so alexander is also london based uh and has been of immense benefit um to the company in terms of um, providing insight and opinion into the way that the various governments we work with may be considering issues. So, you know, Exxon is a US government bank and we have both Greenlandic and Danish mm. political oversight at a project level. So it's a relatively complex government environment for, for what remains a small cap today. Hopefully we won't be a small cap for long, Justin. Um, and, <laughs> and Alexander's contacts um, around the world are unparalleled and I bet. Um, so how important just on that how important has it been for you to bring in someone of the of the gravitas of the former foreign affairs minister of australia to- um alexander's name is is so well known that i rarely need to say anything other than we've welcomed um mr downer onto the board and people understand mm. what that means inherently yeah so yep. in my opinion he's someone that could have stepped onto the board of any internationally focused asx listed company you know it could have been it could have been Qantas, um for mm. example or it could have been bhp and and nobody would blink you know that's the level of ability and reputation that he brings so for him to step onto the board of ironbark um, was a huge again signal of confidence in the strategy and the asset and that has been very valuable there's there's no question so with respect to the zinc market if you try to get your crystal ball out what are your expectations for the zinc market and the forecasts when you eventually come into production yeah, zinc's notoriously difficult to call as a price. Our view as a board is, first of all, you know, you don't control the price, but what you do control yep. are your costs. And we were pretty deliberate, again, in, in the feasibility study phase about making decisions that drove us as low as possible on the cost curve. So a specific example of that is when we looked at our our power station we've elected to proceed with the largest possible generating sets we can um, we can use to make sure the operating cost was as low as possible so if if you are the the lower you down you are on the cost curve um, the the longer it will take to impact your own balance sheet in a lower price environment so, so that's one way you can sort of mitigate against price risk um, on the upside we see, and it's well recognised by industry commentators, whether you look at you know, Benchmark Minerals or um, Wood Mackenzie, for example, who, who we use and I think are probably the best in this space. There mm. is no doubt a deficit in the future around zinc. If you look at supply today from currently operating projects, um, they need to expand as well as new mines need to come online in the future. To where, where are they? So the, you know, 
the base metal sort of complex is um, is spread out all around the world. So there's some very large zinc producers in here in Australia. Um, there's some large ones in China. There's large ones in Russia and in you know in Canada and a number of different places. So it is relatively um, diverse geographically. Now they you know they will need to both extend their life and potentially expand production but we also need to see new zinc mines come on there is no question if you look around the world today um, there's there's a, a relatively new project under development in russia but there are not many that bring to the table the same advantages that citronin has in terms of investability a lot of the other large zinc projects that are scheduled to come on are in jurisdictions or are owned by asset owners that are difficult to invest in um, we don't believe that applies to us um, we think the exim approach that we have um, will further de-risk the financing perspective but in terms of you know jurisdictional risk um, we perceive you know greenland to be exceptionally low and if you look at what happened with the zinc price this year then you know it as i said that the physical market looks pretty tight so long answer there to arrive at the key point which is difficult to forecast the zinc price yeah, we don't know <laughs> but you, you, the only way you make money from it is if you're in production the only way to stay in yep. production is to make sure you're as low as possible on the cost curve. And then yep. intermittently in zinc, you will see some very high price spikes. And if you are in the market and operating at those at those times, then you will make um, substantial profits. So we're, I wouldn't say we're price agnostic. Um, we modelled at a price uh, at $1.30 a pound. That's a that's about, which is pretty conservative. It's about 20 cents a pound below where the price is today in the spot market. Um, and so, you know, we think the asset well and truly stacks up uh, whatever the zinc price will be in the future over time, considering I think Citronin will still be operating, you know, in the middle of this century. Um, we're confident the zinc price will be higher then than it is now. Final question, Michael, for uh, punters out there that are listening to this and they're thinking of, dabbling in a potential stock what can you tell them about the future of ironbark from a business point of view we are on the cusp of a decision with exum that may be genuinely transformational um, now you know very clearly not in the position to issue investment advice to anyone but when i say transformational i think relative to the types of valuations that we already see on the ASX for you know competing projects. There are a number out there already with market caps substantially higher than Ironbark's um, and typically far less advanced um, in their stage or state of development. I perceive that Ironbark has suffered a discount because of the financing hurdle. If we are able to you know, get over that. There's nothing that that should stop the stock from re-rating from what you know is really valued as an explorer, despite the fact that the asset is is well and truly in development stage. And you will typically see um, valuations evolve as as companies move through that project life cycle. So, you know, I, you couldn't replace the tons we have in reserve category um, for the cost of the drilling for our market cap in a nutshell so that you, there's a lot there's a lot of value that's not yet recognized in the stock and my job is to um is to tackle that problem 
Fantastic catching up with you and getting a, a debrief and a deep dive on, on the business. Michael Jardine, Managing Director of Ironbark Zinc. We wish you well in the future and thanks for coming on to the show today. Thank you, Justin. Thank you again for the time today and I look forward to talking again in the near future.